4. Sorry, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles and you don't know where that is, it's on page 1022 of that Bible. And in just a bit, we'll read verses 11 to 18. This is the last in our series on the one another's of the New Testament. Um, I have been uh, encouraged and blessed and challenged by working through these things again, maybe even in particular in the days in which we now live. But there is something I probably should have done at the beginning of the series that I am now going to do that we're opening the last in this series, and that is to remind us all that when it comes to the one another's of the New Testament, there are some particular dangers that come along with considering them, with studying them, with thinking about them. And I just want to mention a few of those this morning. The first is the danger of examining others' obedience rather than my obedience. You know, we, we, we tend to see failure clearly in other people while we are blind to it ourselves. Now, this can be true of any command in the Bible, but it seems especially true of the one another's. We tend to think about how other people aren't one anothering rather than examining ourselves. Using Jesus' words in Matthew 7, this is, this is us focusing on the speck in other people's eyes when God intends for us to examine the log in our own and remove it. Coming along with that, another danger is the focusing on what I receive rather than what I give. You know, we can take out comment cards when we hear these one another's, and we'll say, well, I'm just going to see how this church is doing, and I'm going to see how I feel they're one anothering with me, right? And we can go through that and consider how others are doing. Now, of course, we ought to aspire to mutual one anothering, right? Any relationship is better when one is both giving and receiving in it. That is true of any human relationship. But God hasn't actually given, opened this Bible in speaking to you so that you can focus on what you receive. When we hear things like show hospitality to one another or serve one another, speak the truth to one another, forgive one another, we ought to be thinking about how is it that I am doing in these things? How am I giving rather than how am I receiving? The third danger is to think that the grass is greener somewhere else, which it seems like a logical conclusion, doesn't it? If you focus all your time focusing on the obedience of other people and whether they are giving and you are receiving what you want to receive, feel like you need to receive, must receive, then it's very easy to come to the conclusion that I probably need to get somewhere uh, where I can actually see all of this playing out like I think it should. I can, I can very easily come to the conclusion that I probably need to go to another church. You know where the people obey these things, where I receive from others as I should. But isn't it interesting to remember that one of the one, one, of the one another's is forgive one another. 
which is in itself, just when you consider what that command implies, the command to forgive one another implies that your relationships in this world and in the church will not be perfect. There will be times when you are sinned against and you, need, you are called on by God to forgive others. There are times when you sin against others and you're going to be called on to confess and seek forgiveness. And the other person is going to be called on. You know, there may be a church somewhere called Greener Grass Baptist Church, but the grass ain't greener there, all right? This is, you know, I think about you, Kevin, and you've been here since you were in the womb. Just trust me, the grass isn't greener anywhere else, all right? <coughs> There's one other danger that I thought of that's now escaping me. If it comes back to me, Later, I didn't write it down, so I actually thought of it while I was playing the piano this morning. So it may come back, it may not. But that's enough danger to avoid, isn't it? It's good enough that we avoid uh, testing the obedience of others rather than examining our own. It's good enough to think about what am I giving rather than what am I receiving. Is it enough to realize that the grass is not greener anywhere else? There is no mystical utopian church such as that. This morning, though, we come to consider the last of the one another's, the, well, the last one we're going to consider, love one another. In fact, this command could be considered an umbrella under which all the other one another's fall. That all of the other one another's serve one another, encourage one another, teach and admonish one another, welcome one another. All of these are expressions of what it means to love one another. And so let's read John's words here. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. This is what the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle John. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother, is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. His point here is that Christian love reveals spiritual life. Let's pray together before we begin. Oh God, we pray that we will, that by your grace, our ears and our hearts will be open to your word that we will hear your truth clearly. Your word is like honey on our lips. It is worthy of our full attention. 
It is worthy of our love. It is worthy of our obedience. God, we pray that you will help us to hear and believe and love and live according to the words you have spoken through the Apostle John. I pray, God, you will guard my words from error and that we will all hear your voice and remember what you have said. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this particular series, we're kind of popping in and out of other letters, so it's helpful to remember the context here. John has written this letter with a very clear purpose in mind, a purpose he states in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants his readers to know that they are genuine Christians. And the test for knowing, as it were, comes with three questions. Question one, do you believe God's truth? Do you believe God's truth? Question two, are you committed to personal holiness? Question three, do you love other Christians? Are you faithful to God's truth? Are you committed to personal holiness? And do you love other Christians? Those three topics come back over and over and over again in the letter to 1 John, giving us ample opportunity to evaluate our own hearts, to take this test, as it were, to answer those questions. Am I really faithful to God's truth? Am I really committed to personal holiness? Do I really love other Christians? And so let me show you why that's actually so important. Look at the verse that comes right before our text begins, chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, John will actually say something very similar about those who deny the truth about who Jesus is. He already done it in chapter 2. The fact is, is that the answers to these questions draw a hard dividing line in humanity. It is not a dividing line between uh, party, uh, party loyalties. It is not a dividing line between ethnicities. It is not a dividing line between nations. It is not a dividing line between sports fans. It is, not a, it is the dividing line between this, those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. That's actually how significant it is. To not be faithful to God's truth and believe in Jesus Christ, to not show the fruit of right, the fruit of the Spirit and be committed to personal holiness, to not love the brothers are all indications that one is not simply a substandard Christian, you understand. John doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, if you don't love the brothers, if you aren't committed to righteousness, if you don't believe the truth, you're just a substandard Christian and you kind of need to get with the game. That's not it at all. He says these things, if these things aren't true of you, it's evidence, though, that you are a child, but you're a child of the devil and not of God. 
That's why these things are so serious. That's why it should be a sobering thing to look at this text. That loving others is not the mark of a particular kind of Christian. It's the mark of whether one is a Christian at all. All right, so let's look at the text first, thinking about the expectation of love, the expectation of love. That's in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, John says, this is the message you have heard from the beginning. The net-net is, this is nothing new. This is not something John is introducing to them. This is something, if you go back far enough, you'll find it's in the Old Testament law. But Jesus has brought it to greater heights in His own ministry. A new command I give to you, He says. Love one another. Love one another. Even if you're not a Christian, you already know this, don't you? If you walk in here and you're not a Christian, one of the surefire things, if you ask what is, a, what is it that a Christian should do, love people is probably among the things that you would say, even if you're not a Christian, that Christians ought to do. And of course, Christians must love all people. Jesus commands us to love our enemies, to love our neighbor as ourselves. but here the focus is on love one another, meaning love one another within the community of faith. Love other Christians. What does that mean? What does it mean then to love? There are incredible misunderstandings about what love is, right? I don't even have to say that. We know that. But we should review it because otherwise every time we hear the word love, we'll just start equating when the Bible says love to other things that we think are love. The the fact is, is that sometimes we misunderstand love as just being a strong affection, just being something that one feels for another. You know, it's Hallmark Christmas movie love, right? It's just starry-eyed. You know, it's the cartoon with the heart that beats four feet out of their chest, right? This, this is what love is. Now, certainly affection is part of love, but love that's not Love that's only strong affection, do you know what it is? It's fragile. It'll break very quickly. Because when you begin to disappoint me, when you begin to do things I don't like, all of a sudden my heart isn't beating four feet out of my chest. All of a sudden my heart becomes like the Grinch and it becomes two sizes too small toward you. That's what happens. So love as a, just a strong affection that we feel toward others is not sufficient. On the flip side of that, there are those who just say love is a mere commitment. There is no affection necessary. I don't like you. I'd rather not be around you, but I love you. Isn't that? Hallmark is really missing something if they don't create a card that says that, right? I don't like you. I'd rather not be around you, but I'm committed to loving you. Um, that's just not a biblical portrait of love. A third misunderstanding is that love is a blind blanket of acceptance. A blind blanket of acceptance. One that doesn't concern itself with morality. So you've heard the phrase, uh, hate the sin, love the sinner. And I think we understand what that means. We can love a person while hating the things that are destroying their soul that would send them to hell, those kinds of things. But 
in our culture, that doesn't actually work today because today, everything that I do, my way of living is part of my identity. So you can't love me without accepting everything about me as it is without a word, even my immorality. You can either give me a blind blanket of acceptance or you don't really love me. That is the message that, 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 that culture believes right now. But these are all misunderstandings of love. Our English word love actually translates four Greek words communicating different types of love, different shades of meaning, and, and we get that, don't we? We know what it means to love in different ways. I love pizza. I love the Tennessee Vols. I love my family. I love that new haircut. I love this church. I love you. All of those have different shades of meaning on what's going on there. And in the Greek language, there are distinct words that are used. One is eros, which means, which speaks to romantic love, the kind of love that God uh, grants to those who are in marriage. There is philia, the love between friends, friendship kind of love. There is storge, which is a kind of family love. It's those, you know, those precious, it's like the grandparent opening up the arms and the grandchild runs into them, that kind of precious little one kind of love. It's a very warm uh, kind of love in the family. In fact, both friendship love and family love come together, uh, are used when, in different places when the Bible commands Christians to love one another in that friendship and in that family kind of way. And then there's the one here, which is the word agape, which is a godlike, self-giving love. And I think the best way to explain what that means is actually to let the Bible explain what it means, all right? Uh, I, I can't do better than the Bible at explaining what this love looks like. So keep your finger there and turn backwards in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Take there, just, just hold your place there. We're coming back very soon, but I want you to look at this while we read it. First Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, I know that many of us will have attended a wedding, and that may be the only place we've actually heard that read uh, as a text like that. How, and it's tr it should be true of love within marriage. However, Paul is not writing to the married couples in Corinth. He is writing to the church. He is writing about how Christians ought to love one another. And so much could be said about these traits. However, let me just summarize with four things. The first, as you look at that text, love is affectionate. It is kind. This is why Romans 12.10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Right there you have this 
The word for friendship love and family love come together. It's a compound word in the Greek, and they come together to say that. And actually, J.B. Phillips paraphrased that verse to say this. Let us have a real warm affection for one another as between brothers. Love is warm. It is. The second thing out of that 1 Corinthians passage is that love sacrifices self to serve others. I mean, it's patient. Do you know what patience is? Do you know when you have to be patient? You have to be patient when you don't get what you want when you want it. Do you know what being patient is? Sacrificing myself at this moment. Dying to self, because self would demand that you do what I want, when I want it, you give it to me in my time frame as I say it. But not only that, within that 1 Corinthians text, that love does not envy or boast. There is the dying of self. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. But also in 1 Corinthians 13, love is holy. Nothing can be called love according to the Bible if it denies or defies the Bible. Nothing can be. So the young couple who plans to get married and commit sexual immorality and says, we just love each other so much we couldn't wait, that is not love in the Bible. That is not love in the Bible. Love is love is a, just a statement that is, going, that is running rampant through our culture right now. That love is just love. That love is just love. And what it will do is it will take 1 Corinthians 13 and it will pick out. But you know what 1 Corinthians 13 says? Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love does that. The fourth thing that we see in 1 Corinthians 13 is that it is committed. There is commitment to love. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. That is what love is. It's affectionate. It sacrifices self to serve others. It's holy. It's committed. Now, back to 1 John chapter 3. This is the kind of love that we have here. And it isn't a suggestion. It's not a nice thing to do if you're able. It is a command. It's like all of the other one another's. It's just baseline Christianity. Now, you may object. You say, well, I'm, with, I'm down with uh, the holy part. I'm down with the commitment part. I'm even down sometimes with the sacrificing self to, to, to serve others, but I can't actually make myself affectionate toward other people. And all I can say to you is, you're right. You can't. But do you know that there is one who can? Do you know that that one lives in you? Do you know that the Spirit of God can change your heart toward other Christians? Toward Christians maybe that you've been holding a grudge against for who knows how long. Anytime we begin to say, I can't do something that the Bible says I must do, we are not, we are not you have to, you've got to be very clear on what you're saying there. When I say, I cannot do what the Bible says I must do, 
then we are not saying something about our inability. We, because we can't obey anything in the Bible on our own. Not to please God, really. Do you know what we're actually saying? When I say I can't do what the Bible says I must do, we are saying something about the, the ability of the Holy Spirit to work it in me. We are saying something about God and not about us. I can't do the thing that God must empower me to do. Well, of course you can't on your own. But you can if the Spirit of God lives inside you. It seems that some of us, instead of getting caught up in that and thinking, I'll start to love when I start becoming affectionate, we ought to do what love does and pray like crazy that God will give us affections, that we will feel what love feels toward others. Feel compassion and mercy. Feel affection. In, in, his, in, in one of his most well-known works, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this, Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. Feelings are to be the caboose of the train that follows right thinking and right doing, not the engine of the train that drives us wherever it wants to go. The expectation is that we love one another. Secondly, the examples of love. The examples of love. John gives us two. Uh, the first is one not to not be like. In verse 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. We should not be like Cain. Now, if you don't recognize that name, Cain was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. And in Genesis chapter 4, he and his brother made offerings to the Lord. Abel's offering was one that pleased God and Cain's did not. And Cain's response in Genesis 4 is not repentance. His response is rage. So he hates Abel. He detests Abel. He gets him out in a field and he butchers him. This word for murder here, it literally means to butcher, to slaughter. It's an underlining of the hate that was in his heart. And, even, and John even tells us why he did it. He didn't actually murder his brother because his offering wasn't accepted. Did you notice that? He didn't murder his brother except for this. His deeds were evil. The evil resided in him. The murder was simply an outworking of the evil and the hatred in him. This is exactly what Jesus says, isn't it? You know, you said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say if you say to anyone, you fool, anyone who hates his brother is liable to murder? Where do you think murder comes from? It's born out of hate. And Christians should not be like Cain. Dear friends, we should not harbor ill will toward other Christians. We should not despise them. We should not turn away from them. We should not feel contempt for them. Now, 
This kind of hate can be expressed in very hot, explosive ways, but beware of thinking if you're not hot and explosive in your hatred toward others that you don't hate them, all right? Because in our culture, it's actually, it's much more respectable to hate people silently and very closed off. So the hatred that is more respectable um, in, in 21st century America is the, uh, the cold internal hate. It distances from others. It creates space. Look, I know there's all kinds of hatred exploding, uh, you know, that has been exploding this very year in various streets of various cities. But as a Christian, you say, well, I'm not going to do that. I would never do that. But I'm never talking to that person again. I think I'm just going to stay. They just need to keep away from me. Uh, I'm just going to politely excuse myself from this fellowship and go somewhere else. It even silently rejoices when things don't go their way, thinking, well, it serves them right, doesn't it? Friend, that is just cold hatred. Those attitudes speak of more of what's wrong in us, not what's going on with the other person. He says it's because his own deeds were evil. And this kind of hate, did you, look, when we were reading that, look at verse 13. When we were reading that, everything is about loving one another, right? Everything is about loving one another. And then you get to verse 13, and it's like some random thought just popped into John's head. Hey, don't be surprised when the world hates us. And then he goes right back to love one another. Isn't that odd to you? When things happen like that and you're reading the Bible, you should just go, why did that happen? I believe it happened because the hate of Cain toward his brother is a mark of the world and not a mark of Christians. And so as John is writing about the hatred that is so endemic in the world, he cannot help but think of the hatred that the world feels towards those who follow Jesus Christ. When we hate others, we are not like Jesus Christ. When I despise you because you don't get, give me what I want, because you're getting things I feel that I deserve, this is not Christ-like in any way, shape, or form. Verse 15 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You say, well, wait, John, didn't you leave out a word there? Didn't you mean to, didn't you mean to say everyone who hates his brother is like a murderer? Isn't that what you meant to say, John? No, he didn't make a mistake. That's what he meant. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We should not be like Cain. On the contrary, we should be like Christ. This is John's second example, verse 16. By this we know love that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. About 14 years ago, I was serving a church in Nashville, and just about every Sunday morning, it was a very busy schedule. I won't walk through it, the Sunday morning schedule, but on the way, I would certainly need, I felt the need to caffeinate every week before I went, so I would stop by a coffee shop and get 
uh, very giant cup of coffee, you know, something you have to hold with two hands in order to drink it. Um, and there was a young man who worked there, and I frequented it. I know it's odd to think about me frequenting a coffee shop, but I did. And I, I would go in, and I would sometimes read in there and study in there. And there was a young man who worked there, uh, and we just we got to know each other over time. And he was a reader. I just knew he loved to read. So one Sunday morning, I asked him, what are you reading? And he said, I'm reading Plato, yeah, well, which is not the normal thing, you know, that somebody just says. You know, they say, I'm reading the latest John Grisham novel, or I'm reading this or that. He's reading Plato. I said, why are you reading Plato? He said, I want to figure out what it means to love someone. And he talks about love here, and I'm trying to figure out how do I measure whether I'm loving or not. And I said, oh, I can tell you how. And his eyes popped open like I've been reading Plato, and you're just going to come in here and tell me you know how to measure love? I said, yeah, sure. And then I basically summarized what John says in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I explained to him that there is a perfect love in the universe. And because it is perfect, anything which reflects it more closely is more loving. So I got to share with him the gospel and he poured my coffee and our conversation went on for weeks and weeks after that. But what John is saying is just that. Do you want to know what it means to love another? Jesus laid down his life. You ought to lay down yours. Now, John doesn't mean that we can atone for one another's sin, that we can clear one another's consciences. What he means is that Jesus' death is the pattern to follow. The humble self-sacrifice of Jesus in the service of others for the glory of God is our example. I mean, Jesus said the exact same thing, didn't he, in John chapter 13, verse 34? As I have loved you, so also you ought to love one another. This idea of patterning our love after Jesus' love was Jesus' idea in the first place. And actually, the Apostle Paul in other places does the same. He says the same when he wants to, to tell husbands how to love their wives. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When he wants to tell Christians how to love one another, he too uses Jesus' example. So Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love, how? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. I mean, think about Jesus' love. Isn't that a, you remember that old chorus, think about his love, think about his goodness, think about his grace that's brought us through. For as high as the heavens above, so great is the measure of our Father's love. Romans 5 says that God demonstrated His love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, we didn't earn His love. We didn't repay His love. Dear friend, there is nothing you can do to leverage God's love out of Him. He gives it freely. He gives it abundantly. 
He gives it in such a way that we are made right with Him. We stand righteous before Him and we will live forever with Him. He has shown that by crushing His own Son in our place. Pouring out His holy, fiery, terrible wrath on Jesus Christ on the cross so that you and I might be saved. And we had done nothing prior to that. As the human race, we had done nothing to God, for God to where He said, oh, these people might be worth saving. No. There is nothing in us that will capture the eye of God. It is His love that captures us. And that is the kind of love with which we ought to love one another. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 3.19 that, 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 that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? Can you really explain that? That you have done nothing and yet God loves you? And actually it's more than you have done nothing. It's worse than you have done nothing. You have done everything to oppose Him. To show hatred for Him. The Bible says we were enemies of Him. And yet He loves us. And loved us and scooped us up into His arms and cleansed us of our sin. Dear friend, if you don't know Jesus, why wouldn't you come running to Him? That love surpasses all love. It surpasses your friend's love. It surpasses the love of your spouse. It surpasses the love of your parents. Surpasses the love of anyone you will encounter. You combine it all together and just multiply it by infinity. It'll never even touch the depth and breadth and width and height of the love of God in Christ Jesus for you. And He did it when you hated Him. When you were His enemy. And then Jesus says, as I have loved you, so also you ought to love one another. Do you know, loving someone because they love you back is nothing special. It's just not special at all. It's not God-like. In fact, in Luke 6, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Anybody will love when it's reciprocated. Anybody can do that. Even sinners do that. Apparently, it doesn't even take the Holy Spirit to do that. It doesn't take the overcoming of the sin nature in order to be able to do something like that. It's just normal. What's unique, what's special, what's amazing, what testifies to the glorious love of Jesus is when you and I love another person, no matter their response to us, whether or not it is reciprocal. That kind of love, that Jesus, that following Jesus kind of love, 
that gives assurance to us and to the world that we belong to Him. John 13, 35, By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We should not be like Cain. We should be like Christ. Those are our examples. The expectation of love, the examples of love, finally the expression of love. How are we to express it? John answers in verses 17 and 18. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How are we to love? Well, John goes straight to an example of what love looks like. He says, when your brother or sister is in need, when they're hurting, does your heart instinctively open to help? When that child started wailing, some of you turned your face like, what can I do to help? I would, do, I would gladly hold that baby. I would hold it, I'll hold her while we're preaching here. That's fine. But I want to help. You're instinctively, you, you want to help. Well, when you see your brother or sister in need, does your heart instinctively want to help? Do you look for ways to get involved, some sacrifice you can make to meet the need? Are you glad to empty your wallet because your heart is filled with love? I once knew a Christian who learned about uh, a woman in his congregation, an older woman who did not have means, but all of a sudden she was without a car. Her car died, and financially she was just unable to replace it. He talked to his wife because he just wanted immediately to help. He talked to his wife. They decided to give her the car for a dollar. Now, I have been blessed like that in my life, in, in my adult life, on a couple of different occasions. But it is born out of love. It is the instinct to say, what is it that I can do? And we can't always just say, well, take my car. But you know what? Sometimes we should. What sacrifice is too great to love others? And what John is basically saying is if our heart doesn't run towards others in love, how can you be sure that God's love chased you down? How can you be sure God's love is in you if you don't love other people? You see, God's love is transformative. When our old, sinful, stony heart is removed and God puts a new heart in us, the capacity to truly love God and love others is born. So in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, we love because God loves first loved us. And this love doesn't live in the realm of the philosophical. It invades the practical. This brings me to the fourth danger that I meant to mention at the beginning of the service. Do you know what, I mean, look, I'm so, aren't you just so thankful for the times when you've been sick and you've had to watch the, from, from the, the live stream and all of that? Let me just tell you that uh, it is wonderful, and it is second best at best, all right, to do that. But some people have lived their whole lives this way in this technological age. I've got my Bible. I've got my internet sermons. I've got music anytime I want. And what they can do, here's what's so easy to do, is just sit in your room with your Bible and just say, Oh, I just love all those Christians out there. I just love them. 
I love them so much. That is love staying in the, in the realm of the philosophical. Love does not stay in the realm of the philosophical. The danger when you hear love one another is just to say, well, as long as I just think about that, as long as I just try to feel it, No, it works out in practice. It changes the purpose with which you walk through each day. It rearranges your priorities. Love becomes practical. Aren't you so thankful that Jesus' love didn't stay in the realm of the philosophical? That He didn't just stay in the glories of heaven and look down and say, I just love all those people. I just love them. They're some of my favorites. No, what did He do? He condescended. He came. He gave. He sacrificed. He died. The death on a cross. Jesus, according to, if we just apply verse 18 there, Jesus did not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. That is the love that we have in Jesus, and that is the love we ought to express. We express it practically. Not just, let's not just say it. It is good to say it. But let's not just say it. Let's show it. Christian love reveals spiritual life. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, uh, D.A. Carson wrote this about Jesus' command to love one another. He wrote, It is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate Profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. It is simple enough for a small child to memorize it and appreciate it. It is profound enough that those of us who have walked with the Lord for a long time can easily become embarrassed at how poorly we comprehend it and put it into practice. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while and hearing all of this, you, the thing that you think is, yes, I must love my brothers and sisters in this church, but I, I wax and wane in it. I, I'm fickle in my commitment to it. I, I don't love as I should. Well, let me just respond by saying, praise God for that conviction. That's wonderful. And second, don't waste the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Commit yourself to change, to grow, to love more deeply, to love more practically, to love more affectionately. I mean, this afternoon, write down three ways that you could love another person in this congregation and do it this week. Don't just walk out thinking, wow, you know, that was so good, I'm so convicted, I'm i got to love one another. What is for lunch? When do the Colts play? Who's on Sunday night football? i got to get ready for work tomorrow. Don't start letting the things that are going to crowd in, crowd in until you stop and say, Lord, how am I going to do what you have said to do? But maybe you hear these things. And you know this kind of love is nowhere to be found in you, in your life, in your relationships with others. You're so, you're cold and distant. You find yourself just despising other people all the time. 
And maybe exploring this actually brings you to the conclusion that the love of God hasn't changed you at all, that if you were sitting down and taking this test as a written test, it would come back with a great big F on it. That you aren't actually a Christian as the Bible defines it, and you realize that by hearing all of this. Well, let me say praise God for that conviction too. And today... Even now, I would urge you to look to the one who loved you. Look to the one who descended into the cruelty of humiliation, the cruelty of death on the cross for you, to Him who lovingly took the punishment of God for your sin. Look in faith to Jesus. He will forgive you. He will save you. And He will love you forever. And nothing the Bible says will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, how thankful we are for your love. How we pray that you will give us strength to comprehend its height and width and depth and breadth. How you will help us to relish in it. Oh God, would you recapture our hearts with your love for us. Would you overwhelm us with joy and humility because of your love for us? It is what we need and it is what the world needs is your love in Christ. We pray, God, that you will help us to love you and to love one another. And that as we love one another, it will be clear that we belong to the one who first loved us. We pray that that testimony to the community around us will result in those who want to know that kind of Savior, that kind of Lord. Cause us to abound in love, we pray for Jesus' sake and in His name. Amen.